Romans 6 in your Bibles, we find ourselves today in the third part of what will end up being seven messages on the law. The mini-series itself is six messages, and then we'll dig back into 1 Timothy and see why, what inspired this series to begin with there in verses 8 through 11 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. Last time we were together in this mini-series, we considered the nature of the law as it relates to justification. We observed very clear New Testament teaching that establishes the truth that never at any point in history has the law factored into a man's justification unto salvation in the eyes of God. Never at any time or in any context has keeping the law as a manner of living been capable of cleansing me unto salvation from my sin. Now, this brings us in our Bible study to an interesting point as it relates to mankind's relationship to the righteousness which is reflected in the law. We've said before, and we'll see again today and over the next several weeks, that that the law reflects righteousness, that there is a righteousness reflected in the law. And to that end, if I am conforming, if I am being conformed to the image of Christ, then it is natural and expected that much of the righteousness reflected in the law is going to be reflected in me as well, right? We, we cannot avoid that. We must understand that, that as the law reflected the righteousness of God, again, we'll focus more on that in the weeks to come, not necessarily this week, that, that we will see a reflection. Does the fact that the law cannot save mean the law is bad? Does the fact that the law cannot save invalidate its power over those who are saved? Does the fact that the law cannot save mean that it has no value at all for the believer? These are questions that we want to answer and we have yet to answer. But we will begin over the course of the next several weeks to answer. And today we begin this kind of this four-week inspection of the law as it relates to the believer. This week we are going to see the law as it relates to the believer's life. And we're going to understand that as it relates to doctrinal teaching, the law is fulfilled in Christ. We are not under its obligations or its burdens any longer. As it relates to the law itself, the law that God gave on Sinai. But we're then going to continue over the next several weeks and see the law's reflection of righteousness and understand what that means for us. And then we're going to talk about the heightened degree of accountability under the Spirit and how the idea of us not being under the law does not by any means give us any sort of a pass or does not by any means mean that we can just do whatever we want. And then we're going to take it one step farther and we're going to see the deepest essence of what it is to keep the law as a believer or to fulfill the law as a believer, to follow Christ, to be conformed to the image of Christ through loving God and loving one another. So all of this is where we're headed. And again, we're still in this week trying to strip away any misconceptions that we might have as it relates to the believer's relationship to law. So last week we stripped away the relationship that an unbeliever might have uh, or, or that the idea that, that one can be saved or justified in the eyes of God through the law. This week we're stripping away the idea that by keeping the law as a believer for what it is, by, by, by assuming upon myself the obligations of the law, I am somehow 
finding favor with God or serving God in a greater way. So we'll, last week we spent a lot of time in Galatians, particularly Galatians chapter 2. We're going to come back there a little bit today. We'll be back there more over the next couple of weeks. But first I want to establish Jesus' foundational teaching toward his disciples on this topic. Jesus' foundational teaching we find in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And Jesus says this. He says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least of these, uh, one of these least commandments, excuse me, and shall teach men so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the law, we know from Galatians, has never had anything to do with salvation, right? We know this. We, we established this quite clearly in Romans and in Galatians last week. The law cannot save. The law has never saved. The law did not save Abraham, who was pre-law. The law did not save David, who was under the law. The law did not save uh, anyone throughout history. And yet we find in Jesus' teachings here in Matthew chapter 5 that until heaven and earth pass away, until all things be fulfilled, there will not be one jot or tittle, not the smallest element in the Hebrew language, which is what the jot and tittle would be speaking of, that will pass from the law. And that those who would seek to teach otherwise, those who would slight the necessity of righteousness as the exclusive means of relationship with the Father, would be counted least in the kingdom of heaven. That those who would slight the idea that anybody that is not sinlessly perfect can enter into the kingdom of heaven will be least in that kingdom. Unless every person, Jesus says, under the sound of his voice achieved a greater level of moral righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees who were considered the, 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 the pinnacle of the day, they would not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now the key to understanding that last verse that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the, of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. The key to understanding that verse is understanding the first verse that we read in verse 17. That Jesus says, I am not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. We established last week that you and I have absolutely no capacity due to the weakness of our flesh, due to the reality of our sin nature, to keep the law, that sinless perfection is God's standard for heaven, but that we have and by necessity do fall short of it. And we establish that this is why Christ had to come. Jesus fulfills the law's standard of perfection. And then at the moment of faith, Christ's sinless perfection that he fulfilled on the cross is imputed to me. His sinless perfection is placed onto me so that in God's eyes, and here's the point, if I, if I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ in God's eyes, I have fulfilled the law. I am sinlessly perfect. I will walk into heaven one day having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, not on my own merit, but on the merit of Jesus Christ. If Jesus has come to fulfill the law, then the moment I am placed into Christ... The moment I am covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, by grace through faith, I am sinlessly perfect in, in the eyes of God. 
And every moment I spend thus abiding in Christ, every moment I spend attached to that vine, as Jesus would say in John 15, I am at that moment experiencing the fullness of Christ, fulfilling every jot and tittle of the law by virtue of walking in the Spirit. I'll prove this as the weeks go on. And this is not just as it relates to salvation, also as it relates to the way that I live my life in Christ. The law is not our standard for Christian living. Now, we'll talk, we'll continue to talk about, as I mentioned, where, those, where the law and the righteousness reflected in the law merges with the righteousness of Christ. But Paul teaches, in and of itself, the law is not my standard. Jesus Christ is my standard. And this is what Paul teaches in Romans 6-8 through quite clearly. We'll get there very soon. To this end, I've often referred to grace as a dangerous doctrine. I say grace is a dangerous doctrine because as we live in grace, as we assume the mentality of grace, we are freed from the debt and the condemnation of a legal system of morality and obligation. Those who are unlearned and unstable will see grace as a license to sin. But the Bible gives no such license. To see grace as a license to sin is in fact to do despite to the spirit of grace. And yet, it is what it is. And it is for this reason that many a conservative Christian can be intimidated, as it were, in a manner of speaking, by grace. Because grace unbounds me from the legal obligations of the law that was fulfilled in Christ, and so gives me the freedom to operate completely free from that threat, from that burden the guilt and the shame and the burden of the legal system that was established in the Old Testament. But the Bible does strike this balance very carefully. So in Romans chapters 1 through 5, Paul speaks of the reality of sin, of it, the reality that it separates us from God, of the incapacity of man to overcome sin and uh, overcome damnation on his own, of the reality that Jesus Christ alone by grace through faith has done this work and that all who will enter into heaven will do so by grace through faith without the works of the law. Now this immediately conjures up in the minds of people a, especially those who love the Lord and who want to do what's right, a, 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 a tension. If I preach this grace, then I'm giving people license to sin then people are going to get the wrong idea that they can just do what they want and that it doesn't matter. And indeed, this is the church that we, the, the, the broader church today lives that way, don't they? That grace is the get out of hell free card. It's the I can do whatever I want because I'm under grace card. It's the it doesn't really matter because grace has covered me already card. And what the Bible says, just as clearly as it teaches this grace and this, this unadulterated grace, the Bible just as clearly teaches that if you think that way, there is, you're thinking very wrongly. That you are 100% you are incorrect about your relationship with God under grace. So Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? 
Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now there's, a, there, there's two beautiful things that Paul is doing in these verses. The first is he is showing quite clearly that if you have this mindset that because you are under grace, that means that you can do whatever you want, that you're thinking about grace all wrong. As a matter of fact, not only are you thinking about grace all wrong, but you are actually offending the spirit of grace. But he's also doing something else. And the other thing that he's doing here is he's going to really, really key in on the fact that you have, that, that the moment that you believed on Jesus Christ, you died with Christ and you rose with him. That you were, that, that you were placed legally, not just uh, into Christ or under Christ's blood, but you were legally placed into his death and legally placed into his resurrection. That you were buried with him by baptism into death and that you were raised to walk in newness of life. And as it relates to the law, this is very, very, very important. As it relates to my relationship with the law, this is what proves unequivocally that the law's burdens are not mine to bear. We'll see that as we continue. The very essence of grace as opposed to the law by which I call myself free from sin it, it is this freedom. A man living under the law is never free from sin. Sin dogs him all his days because the law condemns him at every turn with every step. There is no freedom in that. The very essence of grace as opposed to the law is that I can say I am free from sin. The man under the law lives under that burden, under that condemnation. But the one who lives free from sin lives in a constant, abiding, enduring freedom rather than a constant, abiding, enduring remembrance of his sin nature and of his offenses with each offense. So the Christian life is so very different from life under this legal burden. The Christian life is not a set of rules. The Christian life is not a legal system. Paul goes on to say, of course, I'm going to skip verses here because this is a survey. He goes on to say in verses 14 through 16, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. Notice this, that Paul is appealing to the reality of us not being under the law to frame the, 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 the heightened reality that I am not under sin, that the dominion of sin has been removed from me. Being freed from the law, we are freed from the dominion of sin, from that thing that keeps pounding the remembrance of sin upon my soul. We are freed from the condemnation and the remembrance of sin because the law has no power left to hold me under its condemnation. Then Paul asks, well, if we're free from sin and the condemnation of this sin, then why should we sin, right? How dare we sin if we've been released from its condemnation and its power? Paul says, God forbid the power of the law to condemn me has been done away in Christ, not just to condemn me to hell, but to hold me under condemnation. God forbid, Paul says, God forbid, because though we are free from the condemnation of the law, though we are free from that fear of hell, sin will still work in me death, that word meaning separation, if I place myself under it. Paul would say at the end of this chapter, the wages 
of sin is death. Whether I'm a believer or I'm an unbeliever, when I sin, it separates me in fellowship from God. Of course, the unbeliever lives in perpetual separation because he's not been reconciled to God. The believer falls out of fellowship when he sins. Death works in him. Separation works itself in him. So death is still worked in us. Death always brings consequences when we sin. Paul then gives an illustration of this to them that know the law. And this is where the death thing becomes really important. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he liveth. But if the husband is dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is freed from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. So Paul gives an illustration here, and he assumes the reader's familiarity with the law. Um, perhaps assuming this, so we, we would presume that a lot of the Roman audience was Jewish. We see that from chapter 2. Um, we are not Jewish, but most of us are probably generally familiar with Old Testament law. Paul reminds the people that under that Old Testament law, this law had dominion for the full duration of a person's life. That the legal system would bind a person as long as they were alive. So that if a woman was married to a man, she was bound to that man, to her husband, as long as he lived, regardless of circumstances. But when that man died, by virtue of his death, the law had no more power, right? He's dead. And she would be unbound from her husband because the binding of the law ended when he died. She was not bound to his memory. The law could not chase his memory, right? The law bound her to him while he was alive. Once he dies, she is unbound. The power of the law ended at the moment of his death. But if while he was still alive, she was married to another, she would be an adulteress under the law because the law is still in effect. Paul then directly relates this to the Christian life, that the moment that I was buried with Christ by baptism into death and raised to walk in newness of life, I experienced a death, right? A death to sin. I was buried with Christ. I was placed into Christ's death. I was raised to walk in newness of life. And at the moment I was placed into Christ's death, judicially crucified with Christ, the law ceased to have any power over me. I died to the law. I, by the law's own standard, was freed from the law. I, it's not as if I, Christ broke the law to free me from the law. I was under the law, but then judicially, I died in Christ and was raised to walk in newness of life by grace through faith at the moment I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior and the Holy Spirit indwelled me. And at that moment, I, that death separates me, frees me from the bounds of the law, from the bounds of the law's condemnations, from the bounds of the law's guilt. And of course, the end of that, the end of that, for the unbeliever would be hell. So I am freed from the law's decree that I must 
be punished for eternity. But then I don't get placed back under it as it relates to Christian life. Now I live in that freedom. And Paul says, God forbid that we should serve in the oldness of the letter. God forbid that we should place ourselves back under that from which we've been freed. God forbid that we could, should continue to live in the sin over which the consequences have been released. I am freed judicially from the law's condemnation, from the law's authority. I am freed from it and I am married to Christ. So Paul goes on to say in verses 5 and 6, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Paul says that in the flesh we lived dead in our sins. Sin, uh, sins reckoned sins by the judicial degree of the law. They were sin, and I knew it was sin because the law told me it was sin. Remember, Paul is speaking to those who know the law, presumably those who have lived under its judgments. Paul says the only fruit that we had under the law was the fruit unto death. A reality of my separation. That's the only thing that the law can do is it can show me my condemnation. It can show me my separation. It can reveal to me my insufficiency. The law has no power to establish life, only to establish death. Now Paul says, as believers, we are. This is not speaking about salvation, being freed from the law. Uh, this is speaking about Christian living, right? That, that's what he's saying here. As believers, we are delivered from the law, dead from the condemnation and the bondage which are, which, in which we are held, specifically so that we would instead live in the power of the Spirit, driven by love, submitted to Christ to work out His righteousness in me. And so the Christian life is, is designed specifically so that we would walk in this newness of life, in the newness of the Spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter. Some would say, well, Pastor, aren't we just talking about heaven and hell here? Isn't it just that when we died, we were judicially freed from, from the, the declaration that because I have sinned, I must go to a place of eternal separation from hell? Uh, from God in, in, in that place of the lake of fire. Isn't that it? Isn't that all that this is talking about? It cannot be. Because Paul is speaking here about the Christian life. He is speaking here about not continuing in sin that grace may abound, right? That, that was the beginning of our context. He was talking about the fact that if I have been freed from the penalties of my sin, then I don't live in sin because it will still work in me death. Not eternal death, because that would mean I can lose my salvation, and we've established before that that is not doctrinally sound. But rather, it works in me a continued loss of fellowship with Christ, a separation from the life that is in God, as I persist in sin following my salvation. The context of Romans 6, 7, and 8 is how I live my Christian life. It is not what has happened to me at the moment of my salvation. We know that from chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. 
So we change our mind, our context here, going beyond just the idea that the only thing that the law did is condemn me to hell and recognize that the law did, does not just separate a man for eternity from God, but the law separates a man in this life. The law, the, the, the law stands between man and God and constantly shows man his insufficiency, his incapacity, stands as that thing which puts his hand out that says, no, you cannot come to God. No, you cannot have a relationship with God. No, you cannot live in the fullness of the joy of reconciliation with God because there's something between you and God, and that's me. And the moment that you died in Christ, that is dissolved. So that you can walk, not in the oldness of the letter, but in the newness of of spirit. That's what we see here in verse 6. That's what we're called to walk in. The newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Not, not being saved in, in, in the spirit, not the letter, right? Walking. This is, this is a Christian concept here. Walking in the newness of the spirit. This is how the Christian life is designed to be. That we would walk in this newness, not in the oldness of the letter. That we would reckon ourselves be dead indeed to sin and alive unto Christ. Now, we're going to focus upon this through any number of perspectives as the weeks go on. But I feel strongly compelled here to make something very clear. If the Christian life consists only of alignment with legal principles, under the argument that as we align with these legal principles, we find success in life, which is true, then we have absolutely nothing that every other religious system does not have. Every religious system, even secular humanism, even the atheist, finds success, clings to the principles of God's design, of God's eternal laws, to establish a happy and fulfilled life. You look statistically, if you want to have a happy and fulfilled life, there's things you do. If you spend your life breaking the law, you know, even the secular humanist, works on these principles. Don't steal, don't murder, don't covet, don't lust. These things are not going to be the best for you. These things are not going to make you happy. They may fulfill some temporary satisfaction, but they're not going to lead to an actual fulfilled life. Even the secular humanist, even the atheist, as they identify these principles, finds in them success. Everyone knows this. Most people don't acknowledge it, but everyone knows this. The degree to which a society finds itself successful is the degree to which that society conforms itself to the truths of God. A society that acknowledges man's sinfulness and so accounts for man's sinfulness is going to be a society that is going to do much better than a society that thinks that all men are born naturally good and will tend toward good. A society that acknowledges that private property exists a society that acknowledges that stealing is wrong, that murder is wrong, a society that acknowledges these things will face natural blessings on account of them, whether or not they ever acknowledge the God that designed this stuff. Is that all that we have? Is the only difference between the believer and the unbeliever the fact that we understand the source? Or is there something more to this? There are religions wholly outside of Christ who have experienced tremendous benefits from uh, identifying God's system and living within it. We talk about Orthodox Jews. We talk about the Latter-day Saints. These people have yoked themselves 
to these concepts of God's design and received all of those benefits. And if that's all we have as it relates to this living of this life, if all we have is the benefits inherent in aligning ourselves with God's design and then a home in heaven one day, then we, 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 we don't have a lot to commend ourselves in this life to them. They have an answer for a home in heaven too. It's not the right answer. So is the only difference that we have an answer and they have an answer or is there something more to this? See, the precepts and designs of the law as a natural benefit to life In other words, just identifying the way that God under common grace has designed things and aligning with it, that is not Christian theology. That's religious dogma. That is simply identifying the world as it exists. There's nothing particularly or uniquely Christian about that at all. But we're called to something more. Everyone knows that the way God designed this world and designed humans leads to success. Again, they may not acknowledge that it has anything to do with God. But people live out the principles of God's word without giving God any credit every day. Every, every time they don't steal, every time they, they don't murder, every time they say, no, you shouldn't lie, it's wrong. Every time they live in contradiction to what they claim to believe, that we're all just a bunch of animals and that nothing really matters and that we have no purpose. Every time they live as if there is purpose and as if there is meaning and if there, there, there is a moral law, they, they are acknowledging God, though they refuse to acknowledge Him. But Christianity is different. It's more than this. It must be by necessity more than this or else it's of little unique value. We know that Christianity is different not just because we recognize that the way that we are called unto salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ is the only true way but that when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, it changes us today. It means something different for us today. It puts us on a different standard of living today than just the moralizer. It, 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 it dramatically changes the very essence of how we live our lives. It changes our purpose for living. It changes our outlook on living. It changes the power through which we do it. It changes the focus of why we do it. And if, if none of that's there... Well, then we have very little, if I'm standing next to all of these other moralizers to commend my system to theirs, very little proof that there's any difference between what they've got and what I've got. So then, as we've said, we are called not to walk in the oldness of the letter, but to walk in newness of spirit. Does this mean that the law is or was bad? Paul goes on to talk about this in verses 7 through 13 of Romans 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. The law is not sinful. It's not to say that because I've been delivered from the law, if I identify principles in the law and I live by them, that I'm sinning. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. The law actually functions to show me my sinfulness, right? As a, as a contrast. That as I compare myself to the law, I say, uh-oh, I'm not doing things right. Paul says, for I had not known lust except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. In other words, without the law and his knowledge. He didn't understand it. But when the commandment came, sin revived 
and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. So Paul asks here, is the law itself sin? And the answer is no. The law shows me my sin. The law is what tells me I've fallen short of the righteousness of God as I inevitably fall by my flesh into sin and fail to live up to the standard of righteousness. But sin, Paul says, took advantage of the law. And what was ordained unto life, the life that God says to the nation of Israel, if you live into this, you shall live. The law that was ordained unto life, the thing that was supposed to say, if you live in this, you will be right with me. Sin twisted. Sin worked in me unto death. Not physical, but spiritual here. It's not that he died physically, right? It's that, that he found in the law not a not the essence of fellowship with God, but rather the essence of his separation from God. The law showed him nothing but separation, nothing but death. It magnified the reality of his separation from God, that God is holy, that he, that he was not, that he, Paul, and we have no power in ourselves to change this in any way, that no matter how hard we try to keep the law, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Sin saw the holy and the just and the good commandments of God, the reflection of God that the law showed us, which if a man shall keep them, he shall live in them, and deceived me, Paul says. What was ordained by God as a manner of eternal design to be man's blueprint unto life, perfect alignment with the righteousness of God, actually turned into man's inevitable condemnation by the reality of his own sin nature. Because I cannot keep the law. The righteousness found in the law is to me and to every man utterly unattainable. Therefore, the law has no power to give life, only to reveal and magnify my death. The law has no power to give life, whether we're talking about salvation by grace through faith unto eternal life or whether we are talking about fellowship with God in this life. The law has no power to give life, only to magnify my death. So that with every commandment I hear, my own sinfulness is made more and more and more obvious and my separation from God is magnified more and more and more. Paul then goes on in the remainder of the chapter to speak about this struggle. I'm not going to read it, but he talks about the good that he would, he does not, and the evil that he would not, that he does. This tension between what he wants to do and what he ends up doing and what he doesn't want to do what he wants to do and what he doesn't end up doing and what he doesn't want to do and what he does end up doing, right? The good things he wants to do, he doesn't do. The evil things he doesn't want to do, these are the things which he does. And this battle between the flesh and the spirit rages and every time the law is placed before his eyes, he is again reminded of his own wretchedness and his separation from, from God is magnified so that he says at the end of this chapter, Romans chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? What death is that? That is the law that's standing before his face. 
Who shall deliver me? That, that, that is the body that, that, uh, that, that's, that's the death inside of him that's magnified by the law. Can we put it more clearly? That is the reality of his own incapacity that the law places before his face every moment. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? But then he goes on to say, I thank God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Paul says that a conscience of the law made him wretched. Knowing that with his mind he serves righteousness, with his body he serves sin. But in Christ, this isn't the whole story. You cannot stop at Romans 7 verse 24. You have to move on to Romans chapter 8 verse 1. When you're reading and studying this passage, you have to do it. In Christ, things are different. In Christ, we have something more. In Christ, we don't have to just want to do what is right, but be drawn face to face with our own insufficiency every single moment of the day. Because as Paul made abundantly clear in Romans chapter 7, verse 6, we are delivered from the law that we should serve in newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. So what does this do for us? Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. As I am walking, not after the flesh but after the Spirit, as I'm in Christ and walking in the Spirit, the law has no power over me. Not its condemnation. It has nothing to hang on to because I'm in Christ. For the law, verse 2, of the spirit of life in Christ hath made me free from the law of sin and death. What is that law of sin and death he's speaking of? He's speaking of the Old Testament law. He says the law of the spirit of Christ, spirit of life in Christ, has made me free from that law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. Again, it's not that the law was evil. That's what Paul said in Romans 7. But that's what he's talking about here. That same law. That law was not evil, but it couldn't. It was weak through the flesh. It could not change my flesh. It could not overcome my sin nature. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The condemnation of the law to magnify my sin has no power over me because I don't walk after the flesh, I walk after the Spirit. The law serves to condemn me in the flesh, to show me how far short of holiness I have fallen. But, but I walk in the Spirit, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and so the law has no more power to condemn me because when it rears its ugly head and it says separation and death, I see Christ. And I say reconciliation and righteousness. The law of the Spirit of Christ has freed me from the law of sin and death. That being the oldness of the letter. That's the context throughout. We divorce this from the context we can define that however we want. But if we keep it in the context, we, we have to understand what Paul is talking about here, the oldness of the letter. We have to understand what Paul is talking about here, the thing which activated his conscience, the Old Testament law. The law, 
Not because the law itself was bad, not because it in itself failed, but because of my sin had no power to free me from the wages of sin, which is separation, whether that's unto, uh, unto heaven or whether that is in Christ. It has no power to, to reconcile me to God. This is our context. We're talking very clearly about believers here. We're talking clearly about Christian living here. That has to be the context if we keep it in its context. All the way back to Romans 6. The law could not condemn sin in the flesh. It could only condemn me in my sin. May I say that again? The law could not condemn sin in the flesh. The law could only condemn me in my sin. Paul says that righteousness, that God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Sin is now condemned because of the righteousness of Christ. Because now the law is fulfilled in me, so sin has nothing to hang on to any longer. Sin's condemnation has no power over me any longer because the law has been fulfilled in me in Christ. So that in the Spirit, the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in me. Every moment I am walking in the Spirit, I am in complete fulfillment of every divine legal requirement because I'm living in the reality of that which Christ purchased for me on the cross. Therefore, I am fulfilling the righteousness of God in total, wholly apart from the specter and the condemnation of the law hanging over my head and showing me my insufficiencies. That's not freedom. That's bondage. Which leads us back to Galatians chapter 2. I give that survey of Romans 6, 7, and 8. But as we get back to Galatians chapter 2, we covered this a couple weeks ago. Let's read it again. Verses 16 through 21. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be, ju- to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid, for, I bu- for if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. So Paul is saying the exact same thing in these verses that we just studied in Romans, particularly Romans 6 and 7. We know that man is justified by faith without the works of the law. We know that Christ has delivered us from the law and that Christ is not the minister of sin. So it was not sin for him to deliver us from the law, nor is he allowing us to live outside of the law against the law. In other words, Christ legally freed us from the law in the same way that the woman was legally freed from the law when her husband died, right? Now, if that woman kills her husband, she is bound, she's, she, she's, she's in trouble, right? Because she has offended the law in order to seek to be released from the law. But as long as she, within the bounds of the law, is released legally from the law, then the law has released her from itself. When her husband dies, 
she is legally released from that legal burden. That's what Paul is saying here. That Christ is not the minister of sin. That Christ has, through the law, released us from the law the moment that we were placed into him, placed into his death. We died. We have been released from the law. For I, through the law, am dead to the law. Right? That's what he's saying there. Through the law, I'm dead to the law. Legally been released from the law by the precepts of the law itself because I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I still live because I'm not dead. Not, not, not in body. So I'm crucified with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, here it is. It doesn't say yet not I, but I still keep the precepts of the law. It says yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. This is what it means to be a Christian. If I'm standing next to an Orthodox Jew on this side and a Latter-day Saint on this side, and they're doing all of, of those, those the Orthodox Jew is keeping all 613 uh, of, of their Judaic laws as, as revealed, you know, drawn out of the Torah. And the Latter-day Saint is keeping all of their, all, all of, of, of their legal standards. And, and here I am in the middle. We may not look that different. But if you talk to each of us, the reality of why we're living, how we're living, and how we feel about how we're living will be entirely different. Because I am not bound by the specter and the burden of this legal system that is hanging over my head and driving me by guilt as, 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 as some sort of cattle prod. I responded to a call. Follow me. I responded to a call. Take up your cross and follow me. And I was crucified with Christ. And now that Christ in whom I believed lives in me, lives through me. It is Christ in me that drives me. It is not the bounds, the guilt, the burden, the shame of a legal system. It is Christ in me that drives me. Because the just shall live by faith. Because without faith, it is impossible to please him. That's why Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Though I still live, it is not I, but it is Christ who lives in me. So that this life that is lived, not under the law, legally I've been released from that. I, through the law, am dead to the law. I died with him, I rose with him, I live in newness of life, and I live this life by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And you know what? There's motivation there. How dare I continue in sin that grace may abound when my Lord loved me and gave himself for me? How dare I go and resubmit myself to the weak and beggarly elements out of which I have been delivered? How dare I go back and I live in that system that Paul says in Romans chapter 6, it's some of what we skipped. What, I think the word is glory. What glory have ye now in those things of which you were once ashamed? If that was your shame, if, if, if the burden and the shame of your sin was the thing that called you unto Christ, and now you live under this freedom of this grace, you can go back and put yourself back in those shackles, but why would you? Why would you possibly do that? Who would do that, right? That's the pauper who's living in the streets and he's begging for bread. 
And the king comes and says, I'm going to adopt you and make you a child of the king. And he pulls you into the house and he takes off your filthy rags and he puts you in royal garments and, and he fills your belly with something other than moldy bread that you pulled out of the dumpster someone's, in the back of someone's house. And he gives you that status and he gives you that opportunity. What person in his right mind would push himself away from that table, would walk back over to those rags, take off the royal garments, put on the rags, and go back and live in that gutter again. Nobody would do that. So Paul says, why would you go back to sin when you've been redeemed from it, when you've been released from it? Grace does in no way, this grace in no way, in no way gives us a license to sin. Again, we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. It just means that I'm living now by, I'm living as a follower. I'm not living with the law behind me, poking me with a sharp stick. I am running in the direction of Christ, and I'm gladly doing it. Because this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. And so, not just in salvation, but specifically here, Paul, speaking of Christian living, I dare not frustrate, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. I don't frustrate God's grace. See, he had already acknowledged several verses ago that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, that a person is saved. That's already acknowledged. Just The, the, the just shall live by faith. And if that's the case, if a man is justified by faith without the works of the law, Paul says, don't frustrate the grace of God by living, at, by, by, by placing yourself back under that, under that burden. Remember how I said a few moments ago that if we seek to live under the law, we in essence are no different from any other religious system. That this is what every religion does, but in Christ there is much more. Paul says a very similar thing in Romans 10 as he speaks about the Jews. He talks about his own people, the Jews, and he says this in verses 1 through 4. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Paul says that the Jews, under the law, sought to live, establishing, they sought to live under this legal code of righteousness in an attempt to prove to themselves their own righteousness in an attempt to have some sort of uh, uh, standard to show them their own righteousness. This is, of course, self-righteousness. And Paul says they had utterly failed to submit themselves to the righteousness of the law because they were submitting themselves instead to the letter of the law. Now again, those are not... The letter of the law and the righteousness of the law aren't in contradiction except for the fact that the Jews sought to establish it in self-righteousness. The law is a path intended to walk a person to the door of salvation. The law's purpose, the aim of the law, Christ is the end of the law. That doesn't mean that he's abolished it. That's not what the word end there means. It means the end goal. It means that if you walk the path of the law, the path of that law ends at the feet of Christ. 
It means that if you're walking the path of the law, you'll come to a door. The law leads you to that door that is Christ. Once a man hits that door, the law goes no further because Jesus testified in Matthew chapter 5 that he came to fulfill the law. And if we seek justification or sanctified living in the shadow of the law, we live under that same insufficiency that every other moral system lives under. But we have something different. We have something better because we have the Spirit of God. And so are dead to the righteousness of the law in ordinances and alive to the righteousness of Christ by faith. So we continue in Galatians 3. He says this, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Paul calls these believers foolish, and he's speaking to believers here. He's speaking about the manner in which they are living their lives as believers. He says they have been bewitched into denying the truth, that they started out strong, but then they lost something. And he draws strongly off of the context of the, the last verses of chapter 2, where he says that if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And he says that they have clearly understood Christ has been crucified. This conviction is alive and well among them. They understand salvation is by grace through faith. This is what he's saying here. That they, that, that's how they received it. That's what he asks in verse 2. He says, this would I learn of you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by faith? Was it that you kept the law that caused the Spirit of God to fall down upon you as it as it was in the book of Acts, right? He's writing to the Galatian believers. He went to Iconium. He went to Lystra. He went to Derby. He preached the gospel. People received the gospel. He says, when you received the gospel, he was there. He, he saw them do it. He's talking to people confidently about their salvation because he was there when they got saved. He says, when you got saved, when you received the Spirit, was it by the works of the law or was it by faith? All right? So they're going to answer naturally, or at least Paul would expect it because he was there. Faith. It was faith. Of course it was faith. Then he asks a follow-up question. Well, then, if you've begun in the Spirit, if the Spirit is what kicked this whole rodeo off of loving God, of following Christ, of these things, are you now then perfected in your Christian life by the flesh? By, by the law. That's, 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 that's the context. Do you, as a believer, begin in the Spirit and then say, now that I'm saved, I'm just going to keep the law stronger, better? Are you perfected by the flesh if you've begun in the Spirit? It doesn't work that way. He calls them foolish for thinking such a thing to be true. Is that life that began in Christ by grace through faith going to be made perfect by submitting yourself back to the law. Paul says this is foolishness. This is not sound doctrine. This is not a life under grace. This is not a life in the spirit. This is not a yoke that God has designed for us to bear or wants us to bear. Paul then proves it. Verses 4 and 5. 
Have ye suffered so many things in vain? If it be yet in vain, he therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? This is Christian living here that he's talking about. This is those who are ministering as believers among them that he's talking about. Paul says, have you really suffered so much at the hands of the Jews simply to submit yourself back to Jewish teaching and Jewish law? In Galatia specifically, recall what happened to Paul there in Lyconia, Lystra, and Derby. He went there and he started preaching. And the Jews got very, very angry. And they stoned him. And they stoned him to within an inch of his life. And they literally thought he was dead. And they carried him outside of the city and they dumped his body to rot in the sun. And he got up. He went back into the city. That happened to Paul in the region in that same area because he was a Jew that was preaching again that, that was not preaching the law of Moses that was preaching the Messiah that was preaching Christ that was preaching this doctrine he says you have suffered too people of Lyconia Lystra and, Der- Iconia, Lystra and Derby you've suffered too has all that been in vain? I mean literally if they just said we believe in Christ but they completely kept everything else there wouldn't be that much persecution. If they, if they would just get circumcised, and Paul continues and he says this. Uh, I don't know if we're going to read it today or not. He says, look, if, if, if you would just get circumcised and just line up with all these things, then, then you wouldn't be under persecution. If that's all we had to do, Paul says, then why did we suffer? <laughs> he says, let me ask you this, believers in, in Galatia. When a minister is ministering among you, and remember, we're talking to those who, uh, during this transition period, as, as, as they were doing signs and wonders. When a minister ministers among you, and he's ministering by the Spirit, and he's working miracles, and he's speaking in tongues, and he's prophesying, things that were prevalent in the early church, was it the law that produced these effects? Was it the law that produced the power of God? Was it the law that brought about these things that validated the power of God? Was it the law that brought about uh, the, 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 the essence of what brought others into the, the, the fold? It was not the law that did this. It was faith. It was the hearing of faith. It was the work of the Spirit. The law was by no means the power the compulsion or the essence of the Christian life of the minister who's ministering in the Spirit. We walk in the Spirit. We live by the Spirit. We minister in the Spirit. We obey in the Spirit. We live not in the oldness of the letter, but in the newness of the Spirit. We are buried with Him. We are raised with Him that we might walk in newness of life. Paul says, don't give that up so easily. Don't be so foolish. Having begun in the Spirit, Don't be made perfect by the flesh. We hasten to round out our teaching by considering Galatians 4 and a brief part of Galatians 5 in summary. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Paul says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed by the father. Even so, we, when we were children, 
were in bondage under the elements of the world, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. How be it then, when ye knew not God, that would be when they were under the bondage and the elements of the world, Ye did service unto them which were by nature, uh, which by nature are no gods. But now, after that, ye have known God. And remember, when they were unbelievers, they didn't live under the law. When they were unbelievers, because this is this was the Galatia. This was the Galatians. He's talking here. There were some Jews, but he's also talking to Gentiles here, right? So that's why he didn't say that they lived. Uh, they were under the law, but they lived under the elements and the bondage of this world. So he says, Howbeit then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. So we'll cover the purpose of the law. That's our context in 1 Timothy. We'll get there. And then we skipped a bit of Galatians that talks about that too. We'll come back to it. Paul said at the end of Galatians chapter 3 that the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. That the law functions as a tool to show us our need for Christ. And then he says here at the beginning of chapter 4, but the, the son is no different from a servant when they're younger. They're both under tutors. They're both under governors. They're both doing the same thing. But there comes a day where those paths diverge strongly, Right? When the son enters into his inheritance and the servant becomes obligated to serve the son. They may look the same early on, but there comes a point where their paths diverge dramatically. When they were both under the law, they looked the same. But when one received the adoption of sons, that path diverged dramatically from the path of the servant. Paul says that the law was a schoolmaster that, and that the heir as a child looks very similar to the servant. Both are under tutors. Both are under governors. The same way. The basics. Foundational morality. This looks the same as the law. This is natural because the law is holy and just and good. A great deal of, great deal of Christianity will come out of Judaism. That's, that's how that works. But Christ is so much more than that. And as an heir gets further and further and deeper and deeper into the privileges of his inheritance, he diverts more and more from the realities of the servant's life because he has been unbounded from the tutors and the governors. He has been freed from, from those that were over him. The servant continues in a life of, having th- having, of being subservient. The son is not. He's freed from that. We are adopted into the family of God. We are made the sons of God. We are given God's spirit. And now that we know God, we know that his spirit is within us, we dare not turn back to what Paul calls the weak and beggarly elements and put ourselves back under the bondage of these tutors and these governors. Remember, in the context here, I probably should have read it, I'd encourage you to go back and look at the last few verses of Galatians 3 into this. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Then, talking about how the servant and the son are both under tutors and governors, now that you've been freed, God, uh, Paul says, why turn ye back to the weak and the beggarly elements? Why do you seek to be put back under some level of bondage? 
And then he says, you observe days and months and times and years. Probably speaking of the Jewish traditions, the Passovers and the feasts and the new moons and such. Bind ourselves to that which has been done away with, fulfilled in Christ. Graduated to something better. He says, I'm afraid that all of the labor I put into you has been lost by this false doctrine that's among you. Again, we skip. Sorry, we have to do this. To Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. So Paul says to them, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to the whole law. You place yourself under the law, then you're a debtor to the law. You want, you want to live by the law, then you live not just by its precepts, but by its consequences. You're a debtor to the law if you place yourself under the law. You get yourself circumcised as a means by which to appease the law. Now you are a debtor again. You have put yourself back under bondage. You're not standing in your liberty. Again, it's not a sin to get circumcised, okay? He's saying, if you do it to bind yourself back, to acknowledge the authority of the law over you, you have placed yourself back into the bondage wherewith Christ has made you free. He says, stand fast in that liberty. Fight for it. Live for it. Verse 4, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. This is not from Christ. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. A little error can make a really big difference. Paul says, don't forsake it that easily. Don't give up on your liberty that easily. Don't yield that liberty easily. Fight for liberty. Give not an inch to the bondage. We know Paul is speaking to believers here. We know that. That's the context. It's essential and irrefutable. He's talking to those who have graduated from servants to sons, to heirs, spirit crying, Abba, Father. That's our context here. We know he's talking to believers and he says, don't Stand fast in your liberty. Don't bind yourself again. Paul spoke in chapter 4 as an example of the law about observing days and months and times and years. Here he speaks again of a second example, that being of circumcision, submitting themselves to circumcision. That was the very controversy that, that sent Paul out of Galatia to Jerusalem at the Jerusalem Council, right? They were fighting with, with some Judaizers who said you had to be circumcised to be saved. Then they said, we need to go down to Jerusalem and settle this thing. So Paul says, stand in your liberty. Don't make the doctrines of Christ of none effect by binding yourself back to a legal system. Those that are justified by the law, he says, have fallen from grace. Those who live in the hope of righteousness do so by faith through the Spirit. Not the oldness of the letter, but the newness of the Spirit. This is not what the law is for. The law has no power to release, only to condemn. Paul says this persuasion into which they have been led is not of the one who has called them. That's God. And then warns that this little leaven, leaven at the whole lump, put a little yeast into the flour, it's going to rise. It's going to leaven the lump. A little error can, can make a big, big difference. Paul says, don't let that, even if it's just a little nuance of difference, don't let it in because it's going to cause problems. 
If this error is allowed to propagate in their midst, it will lead to bigger, deeper spiritual problems. Now, does all this mean that the righteousness found in the law has no reflection in the Christian life? Again, I have to leave you here. We'll pick up again next week. There's a lot more to be said. I've torn things down pretty heavily, but we're going to build back up. Okay? So don't... This is not my conclusion. Right? It does not mean that the righteousness found in the law has no reflection in the Christian life. Does all of this mean that God no longer cares what I do and grace is my chance to fulfill the lust of the flesh and call it holy because Jesus has redeemed me from the law? No, it does not. We've already talked about that. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, right? What shall I say then? Shall I continue in sin that grace may abound? No, 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 no. Don't do that. Does this, if, any, if anyone walks away and says, oh good, pastor said I can sin, you, you didn't hear me right. Okay? Does this mean that the Old Testament doesn't matter, that we don't need it, that it is in any way less important than the New Testament? No, it does not mean that at all. The, New Te- the Old Testament is essential. It's valuable. It's written for our learning. We need it. Anyone who sees this liberation from the law as a license to sin, as a release from responsibility or accountability, or as a reason to reject the Old Testament teaching, a different God, a different system, is gravely mistaken. Okay? We'll explore these realities in the weeks to come. But what the dogmatic and strong and unreserved nature of Paul's teaching as it relates to the law are intended to do is to tear down any vestige of unsound doctrine which might reside in our thinking on this issue so then again we can be built up properly in a perspective that is fully invested in the realities of the the life in the spirit, under the spirit, a life of grace rather than with a loyalty to the law as it is presented in the Old Testament with all of its consequences and its shame and its futility. It's a call to a different perspective a call to a different and a higher form of living than that which can simply be reproduced in the lives of those who have the discipline to submit themselves to ordinances and traditions. It's not enough just to have the discipline to submit yourself to ordinances and traditions. That's the letter. We walk by the Spirit. And once we establish this mindset, we place our feet firmly within this conviction Then we can talk about the elements of the Christian life which can and perhaps ought to and many times must reflect the principles that are found within the law, not because the law defines the nature of God, but because the law is a reflection of the nature of God. But this conversation dare not take place until the time that we have established our relationship to the law as it relates to the doctrines of Christ, both as a means of justification and as a means of Christian living. Only then, living in the freedom of grace purchased for us on the cross, can we see clearly enough to define the religious system within which we desire to operate. So let us for this week do as Paul says here in Galatians chapter 5. Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. I remember the first time I preached that. I preached that that yoke of bondage was sin. I was preaching before our seminary professor. <laughs> he came up and said, you need to study that a little more before you preach it again. And I studied it a little more and I said, oh, the yoke of bondage there is not sin. The liberty being spoken of there is not freedom from sin. The yoke of bondage there from the entire context is the law. It changed some things. Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free. 
be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage, lest we fall short of sound doctrine. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.